The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Master Hakun's chant and praises are Zen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is Wednesday, 29th of July, 2020, and this is the day two Taisho for our four-day online session. And we're going to read another passage from Cultivating the Empty Field, The Silent Illumination of Zen Master Hongzhou, translated by Taigen Daniel Layton with Yi Wu. And the passage we're going to take up is called The Bright Boundless Field. I'm just going to read the whole thing so people can get a sense of its poetry and then we'll um, take a look at it more slowly. Actually, um, the bright boundless field is the one we looked at yesterday. Uh, this one is called um, The Practice of True Reality. The practice of true reality is simply to sit serenely in silent introspection. When you have fathomed this, you cannot be turned around by external causes and conditions. This empty, wide, open mind is subtly and correctly illuminating. Spacious and content, without confusion from inner thoughts of grasping, effectively overcome habitual behavior and realize the self that is not possessed by emotions. You must be broad-minded, whole without relying on others. Such upright, independent spirit can begin not to pursue degrading situations. Here you can rest and become clean, pure and lucid. 
bright and penetrating. You can immediately return, accord and respond to deal with events. Everything is unhindered. Clouds gracefully floating up to the peaks, the moonlight glitteringly flowing down mountain streams. The entire place is brightly illumined and spiritually transformed, totally unobstructed and clearly manifesting responsive interactions like box and cover or arrow points meeting. Continuing, cultivate and nourish yourself to embody maturity and achieve stability. If you accord everywhere with thorough clarity and cut off sharp corners without dependence on doctrine, like the white ox or wildcat helping to arouse wonder, you can be called a complete person. So we hear that this is how one on the way of non-mind acts, but before realizing non-mind, we still have great hardship. first line of this, this passage, the practice of true reality is simply to sit serenely in silent introspection. Hongjie um, here is, is referring to um, the silent illumination practice that we mentioned yesterday. And it has these two aspects, silence, that is to, to say a quiet or still mind, and illumination, brightness, or insight. There's a little bit um, in the introduction to the text about this silent illumination. silent illumination that Zen Master Hongzhou expounds is both a form of sitting meditation practice and an orientation to a spiritual way of life. His meditation instructions do not specify yogic postures or rituals such as would be familiar to his students at the temple where he taught. Instead, his writings display the many facets of the universally available experience of non-dual, objectless meditation and the endless refinements and attunements evolved in living out of this awareness. A little bit later, silent illumination involves withdrawal from exclusive focus on a particular sensory or mental object to allow intent apprehension of all phenomena as a unified totality. This objectless meditation aims at a radical, refined non-dualism that does not grasp any of the highly subtle distinctions to which our familiar mental workings are prone and which estrange us from our experience. Such object-subject dichotomization is understood as artificial fabrication. Hongzhou's silent illumination is of great relevance to contemporary spiritual seekers. His teachings are important uh, as a primary source for Dogen, whose works remain highly influential in Zen practice. Hongzhou's vast, luminous Buddha field is the field of Buddha nature, our, unalienable, our inalienable endowment of wisdom. Hongzhou tells us that this bright, empty field which lies imminent in us all, can in no way be cultivated or artificially enhanced. We must only recognize it and not allow our busy, mischievous, 
thinking and conditioning to interfere with our own radiant clarity. Um, elsewhere in the introduction, um, Leighton um, equates this practice of silent illumination with, with the ancient um, practices set out in the Theravadan uh, tradition of shamatha vipassana or um, calm abiding and special insight. Um, this is a practice also found in, in uh, Vajrayana schools, uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra. In, in Zen practice, we have um, different ways to settle the mind um, so that its inherent light can be seen as, as is spoken of here in, in, in regard to silent illumination. But in all the practices, there are these two elements of, of calming the mind down, stilling it, so that it can become a more effective um, lens for apprehending our experience. And this is where the, where the special insights comes in. So these, these two aspects are, um, are the, really they're, they're, they're the essentials of meditation. And um, we, we need to um, bring them into balance. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from um, a wonderful little book on the practice of what is this, um, the, the Korean uh, form of, of questioning that some of you are practicing right now. Um, and this book is, is by uh, Martin and Stephen Batchelor. Um, I'm going to be reading from, uh, they, they, they uh, alternate in the, the, the chapters in this book. I'm going to be reading from a chapter um, of Martin Batchelor's called The Basis of Meditation. And just a little bit about Martin. Um, she was a, a son nun in Korea for 10 years. And she's the author of many books, uh, including uh, Meditation for Life, The Path of Compassion, Women in Korean Zen, and Let Go. And she's, the most recent book is called The Spirit of the Buddha. Um, and she's been teaching in um, the UK for many years and now lives in southwest France with her husband, uh, Stephen. Um, Stephen Batchelor, many of you will have read his books. He's a writer and a teacher. Uh, he and Martin were actually at the Zen Center um, back in, in uh, 1996 uh, for, for the center's 30th anniversary. There was a, a um, series of talks, and, and Stephen Batchelor was, was one of the speakers at that, at that um, event. Some of you may have met them when they when they were here. This this book um, is published by a um, New Zealand publishing house called Tuferi. Um, it's a very useful book um, for people practicing. Um, what is this? So just a, a little bit in here that hopefully will be illuminating not only for people practicing what is this, but also for, for those of you who are doing shikantara or um, koan. In Buddhist traditions, meditation practice is based on two fundamental elements. Anchoring and spiritual and sorry, anchoring and experiential inquiry. The, the various Buddhist traditions approach these elements in different ways. For example, in the Vipassana tradition, the anchor can be the breath or the body. In the Tibetan tradition, you might use a mantra, a visualization, 
or a theme. If you look at Japanese Rinzai and Soto Zen, there, there were two currents which predominated. The Rinzai current using koans as, or questions as, as focus and the Tsao Dung current, later known as Soto. Soto Zen taught just sitting, a meditation practice called, also called silent illumination. In the Korean Son tradition, the anchor is a question, like, what is this? There are different ways to anchor. We can focus on something in the moment, as in the Vipassana tradition, or settle on a question, as in the Korean Son tradition. We can also cultivate experiential inquiry in different ways. Vipassana practitioners, for example, do it by being aware of change. In the Korean Son tradition, we focus on questioning and experiential inquiry. In any tradition, anchoring and inquiry are developed together to become creative awareness or creative mindfulness. We might practice them in different ways, but these two aspects remain the essential components of the practice. So when we're sitting in meditation, we're basically cultivating these two elements together. Rather than use the term concentration, I prefer to use the word anchoring because we have an unhelpful relationship to concentration. If somebody says to us, concentrate, generally we tense up and try to narrow our focus. Anchoring is a better image because it brings to mind anchoring a boat. We have the anchor, we have the boat, and thanks to the anchor the boat is not going to drift away. The boat isn't stationary, it shifts a little according to the current and the wind, but it's not going very far. I think this is a very helpful image. Um, sometimes, and I know this was the case for me, we, we can conceptualize concentration as being something very, very um, tight and rigid. And because we're imagining it like that, we ourselves become tight and rigid. And um, this is not helpful. So we see that the anchor, the breath, the body, sound or a question, actually helps us to be with our experience. The aim is to be with our life in this moment, in an open and stable way. In the Son tradition, we come back to the question, what is this? The crucial aspect of anchoring, whether we're coming back to the breath or coming back to the question, what is this, is that we come back to the whole experience of this moment. When we're sitting here and with nothing to do but cultivate meditation, anchoring and questioning, we might notice that a lot of time, the time we're somewhere else. Just as we can't stop ourselves hearing, we can't stop ourselves thinking. Rather, we're creating space so that we're not too lost in thoughts. What we might notice as we sit is that, yes, we're going to have thoughts, and a lot of the time the thoughts are going to be fairly repetitive. Maybe from time to time we'll have a new thought, and sometimes we might think creative thoughts, but most of the time it's repetitive. It's the same with sounds. As we go through the day, sounds repeat. The sounds of birds, the sounds of cars, the sounds outside. It's the same with the sensations in the body. Some will come again and again. Repetition is part of life. But we don't want to become stuck in it. From time to time we have thoughts that we've never had before, just as from time to time we hear sounds we've never heard before. As we anchor, the point is not to stop the functioning of the organism, Another very important point that can, people can misunderstand. We're not trying to stop our thoughts. It's, it's not possible. As long as we have a mind, it will produce thoughts. That's what it's for. So again, as we anchor, the point is not to stop the functioning of the organism. We think, we see, we hear, we taste, we smell. We experience sensations, we have thoughts. 
This is just the organism functioning. Anchoring helps us to open up some space so that it's not so relentless, not so repetitive and automatic. Thus we can experience some freedom, some creativity and spaciousness. We can exercise choice. Do I want to continue to think these thoughts? Do I want to continue to be with these sensations? And um, somebody was saying to me um, in Doksan that at a certain point she was just able to regard this repetitive uh, stream of thought that was uh, in her mind and just say, no, let go. She was able to do that because she'd seen it clearly that it wasn't helpful, it wasn't um, creative. It was just a, a repetitive um, train of thought. When we focus on inquiry, our anchoring consists in returning again and again to the question and to notice that when, that when we're lost in thoughts, we're not totally here with this multi-perspectival experience. Rather, we're caught in just one aspect of it, which often references the past or the future. In returning to the question, we train ourselves to be here, bringing creative awareness, creative engagement to this moment. And we can only do this by accessing our experience in each moment. And the same is, is it true for shikantaza, where um, we, get, we, we will sense when our mind gets narrowed down onto one particular aspect of our experience, a thought or a feeling or a sensory experience. And we, we can just broaden our mind back out again to include the rest of our uh, experience of that moment. It is very important to see that when we anchor, when we focus, we don't hold onto the breath for dear life, nor do we hold onto the question tensely. Instead, we use them as an anchor in our experience. We come back to them again and again and cultivate choice. Do I continue with this or do I return to the question? That's the choice we have. We can continue with a certain thought or come back to our whole experience via the anchor. When we come back to the question or to the breath, four things are going to happen. Firstly, we're not going to feed the repetition. Secondly, we weaken the power of the repetition. Thirdly, we bring our attention back to the whole moment. And finally, we bring ourselves back to our creative functioning, which to me is an important part of the practice. This can help us become calmer, more spacious and stable. And in, in, uh, this is true, whatever we use as our anchor, whether it's the qu uh, question or the breath or shikantaza, just the sensations of just sitting. She goes on uh, to talk um, more about questioning. If we're using the question when we're sitting, we just ask inwardly, silently, what is this? But we need to note that this practice is about questioning. It's not a practice of answering. Within the Son tradition, we're trying to cultivate a sensation of questioning in the whole body and mind. In other words, we're trying to give rise to a, um, a sense of perplexity, what is called in, in China and Japan and Korea the doubt mass, this feeling in the body of, uh, of, of wonder or, or um, perplexity.
to cultivate the sensation of questioning the whole body and mind. The anchor is the question and we come back to the question again and again. You'll notice that if you come back to the question, you come back to the whole experience of the moment. So although they're different and one employs questioning and the other doesn't, there is a lot of um, kinship between this questioning, what is this, and shikantaza, which similarly we, we, we come back again and again to the whole experience of the moment. This. That's, that's what links these two practices. The, this, um, the word this. What is this? Just sitting, just this. The other aspect of the practice is experiential inquiry, which means we're not just repeating the question like a mantra. We're not sitting there silently chanting, what is this, what is this, what is this? The most important part of the question is the question mark itself. Again, another important point, and this applies beyond just this particular question. Somebody said to me today that, uh, or in Doksan, rather last night, that sometimes mood just disappears. But as long as there's a sense of, of uh, questioning, of the, the, as long as the, the question mark remains, then um, it's still practicing. She writes, you might say, but what is this? You might think that this question is a little vague and wonder what precisely you're asking about. We're not asking about anything in particular. When you ask, what is this? You're throwing the question into the moment, which direct, gives you direct access to being in the moment. It's a um, really good way of, of um, thinking about it. You're throwing the question into the moment. We ask, what is this? Not as a way to define the experience of the moment, nor to fix it, but just as a way to open to it. So it's important to see that the aim is to open to the moment without defining everything, anything. Same, same with Mu. We've got to let go of all our ideas about about Mu. It's not what we think. So to question without expectation of um, a certain kind of answer. So it's important to see that the aim is to open to the moment without defining anything. Think here of, of the, one of the most well-known, at least in Zen, phrases from the Diamond Sutra, arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. This is what a, a koan helps us to do, to arouse the mind. If you're used to practicing Vipassana or mindfulness meditation, you can use it in what I would call a modern way. You might be sitting there, then a thought arises, and you might ask, what is this, to gain a different relationship to it? Traditionally, we just ask the question with no reference points. It's a totally open-ended question. 
at this level is not analysis. We're not engaging in psychological or philosophical research. We're not delving into the meaning of the universe. Rather, we're deploying a method whereby we can cultivate anchoring and inquiry together. She's right in a certain sense that we're not delving into the meaning of the universe and we're not not delving into the meaning of the universe because we're not separate from the universe. But we, we have to be clear that we're not engaging in psychological or philosophical um, inquiry. It's we're, we're asking at a much more profound level that, than that. A, um, say a visceral level, literally, in that we we, we anchor um, from our belly, from the hara. But she's also pointing out that we this this is a method where we can cultivate anchoring and inquiry together, anchoring the word for the, the uh, calm abiding or concentration aspect of these, these two um, sides of the meditation. She goes on, Crucially, we're trying to balance the elements of calmness and brightness. If you're used to meditating on the breath and if you think the question is attracting lots of thoughts or is agitating you, you can always come back to the breath or the body something that is calming. If you feel a little sleepy and you're used to watching the breath, you can, which can be calming and a little sleep-inducing, then ask the question, what is this? It could help to wake you up. There are many different ways to put the question. I recommend two main ways. First up, we can synchronize it with the breath as one teacher in Korea presented it. You breathe in, and as you breathe out, you ask, what is this? You breathe in, and as you breathe out, you ask again, what is this? Try that a little, if you like. But be careful not to let the practice lead you into controlling the breath in any way. This is not a yoga exercise. You let the breath come in, and when it naturally leaves the body, you ask the question. Um, some teachers actually... Um, advise not connecting the question with uh, the breath in any way. Master Sheng Yin talks about this uh, out of the concern that we do try to control the breath and then the body and mind become out of kilter from, from this um, sort of imbalance and trying, trying to make the breath into a certain way. So very important uh, to right from the start when we do breath practice, just to not um, try and make your breath in any particular way, but just the natural breath. And then that will, if we set up that habit through our, our practice of the breath, then um, it won't be uh, something we will be less likely to get into that if we, we take up a koan. And she's presents another method. Alternatively, you can ask the question and stay with the same sensation of questioning, the unknowing, while it's there, and then when that sensation subsides, you can go back to the silent wording of the question, what is this? Above all, don't ask the question with the head. You really don't want to do this because it'll give you a headache. Draw the question down and ask it from the belly. Ask it from a feeling of the belly. What is this? Try to pose it with the whole body and mind without, in t without tensing around it. This is important because sometimes when we meditate we try to focus or question with the body in a tense way or we might try to force it with the body, scrunching the head for example. In our practice here we sit in a relaxed upright posture and then try to bring the question down to the belly. What is this? Um, good advice here to, to um, make sure that we're not um, tensing the, 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 the shoulders and the neck and the head. 
time, but rather letting, letting our center of gravity drop down into the belly area. Just a little bit more here. Some people focus on the question and it seems to provoke thoughts. If that happens, try reverting to mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body, or mindfulness of sound, and just from time to time, maybe once or twice in a 30-minute meditation session, you can drop in the question, but not too much if it has a thought-generating effect. Uh, one of the things that can happen is we get uh, very tense around this idea that our, um, our awareness of, of the koan or the breath has to be uh, continuous. But the, the way that we will develop greater continuity is um, if we have a kind of uh, easeful relationship with our, our coming back to the breath. That if we're too tight around it, then then uh, there'll be thoughts, judgmental thoughts, and around when we we um, lose concentration. So to to play with how we we approach the question. It can be uh, get to the point where the the question is quite well embedded in us, and we don't have to articulate it every moment. Again, what really counts is the sensation, the, the um, underlying kind of um, orientation of the mind uh, toward not knowing. Some people feel a little anxious when they ask the question, if that's what happens for you, go back to mindfulness of the breath, body or sound, and from time to time introduce the question. We're trying to cultivate quietness and clarity together. So see which element can help you here. Questioning can definitely help us with clarity, and for some people it's a very good anchoring element. Others might choose to use the body or breath as an anchoring element. So um, we need to practice intelligently and and just discern what is most helpful for us at any given moment. If we do get um, really overwrought and tense, then um, we need to let up. If we're getting really dull, we need to find a way to brighten the mind. But always there has to be these two these two elements, the quietness and clarity, silence and the illumination, as Hongjo puts it. Another thing that, that um, Martin Batchelor suggests we play a little bit with is uh, what she calls foreground and background. She says, remember, the question opens up a broad and deep focus. Again, Shikantaza also does this. A broad and deep focus. Not narrow and, and, and uh, single-pointed, but... Um, panoramic. We're not asking uh, what is this, what is this to shut everything out. That's not the idea. And again, this is, this is something that can lead us astray in, in, in uh, Kalan work in general. To shut out the world somehow with, with the Kalan. Very um, misguided idea. We're not asking 
the question to shut everything out. Or rather, we're asking, what is this in the foreground, while in the background we have a wide open awareness, where we have thoughts, sensations, hear sounds, notice feelings that arise and pass away. So put the question in the foreground, and everything else in the background. At times, though, you should have sound in the foreground, or the breath possibly with the question in the background, or no question at all. Then introduce it again from time to time, and see how it works. Um, we can we can apply this to to any um, koan we're we're um, practicing with. When we're sitting in the zendo, we we um, endeavour to keep the the awareness of the koan in the foreground, in the front of our mind. But then when we get up and leave the mat, and maybe we're cooking dinner or um, cleaning up, washing the dishes, then naturally we have to have um, what we're doing in the foreground, but the koan can still be there uh, in the background. And then if we, we go along with that, then when we sit back down on the mat, we'll be able to shift it into the foreground again. What we're doing, in, 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 as, as Martin Bachelor suggests here, playing with this, is just realizing that um, our mind is, is, is flexible. We have the possibility to work in this, in this um, flexible, open kind of a way. As she, as she says at the end of this passage, see how it works. Working with a, a koan is a kind of dance, and um, we, we by, by paying attention to what is going on in any given moment, then we can um, find a way to, to, to dance with the question to look, look into its eye deeply. So quite, quite a long digression on just this first um, sentence of our, of our passage here. We'll keep going. So Hong just said, the practice of true reality is simply to sit serenely in silent introspection. When you have fathomed this, you cannot be turned around by external causes and conditions. With, when we've fathomed it, that that our practice is simply to sit serenely in silent introspection. Our job really is, as um, living beings, living human beings, is to calmly illuminate what is right, what is right in front of us. Um, many of us, I think, have have, have um, through through the circumstance of these last few months, um, being forced to sit quietly in our rooms and do just this, to just keep practicing. Even though our, our movements were highly restricted, um, during our very strict Level 4 lockdown, uh, back at the end of March and April and May, um, Suddenly we all found ourselves confined to our houses, um, really not, not only forced to sit quietly in our rooms, as Pascal put it, but um, given permission to do so. I heard from a number of students who suddenly felt that they could practice um, 
with now the permission to do nothing and a kind of relief came with that. Now at a certain point, uh, a little bit into the, into the lockdown, I just had this uh, um, sense of I just have to sit and listen. And this was both meaning to sit and listen to students who I was now spending much time on on Skype and Zoom talking to, but also just to sit and listen to what was unfolding around me. And really the the uh, the, the right response will come out of that. If we can we truly sit listen, then um, how to proceed will will um, become clearer to us. He says, when you have fathomed this, you cannot be turned around by external causes and conditions. How necessary this is for there to be people who um, are not turned upside down, uh, bowled over by um, circumstances, to be the calm presence in turmoil. He goes on, this empty, wide open mind is subtly and correctly illuminating spacious and content, without confusion from inner thoughts of grasping, effectively overcome habitual behavior and realize the self that is not possessed by emotion. So the, the realization of this, this, um, this empty, wide, open mind is in our uh, working with our habitual behaviors, our habitual, habitual ways of seeing things and, and relating to things. He says, realize that the, the self that is not possessed by emotion, he doesn't say um, get rid of your emotions, but rather um, don't be possessed by them. Don't identify with them completely. Fuse with them and not, not see that they are phenomena rising in the mind. And again, he, he isn't suggesting that we just are um, quiescent, not just the, the calm side of the equation, but also this um, inquiry. This overcoming of our habitual behavior through shining a light on it. You must be broad-minded, whole, without relying on others. Such upright, independent spirit cannot, can begin not to pursue degrading situations. Broad-minded whole without relying on others. I think of this um, uh, relying on others um, pointing perhaps to the, the um, things that, that uh, uh, come from outside that, that disturb us. Um, there's this teaching of the eight worldly winds, of, um, gain and loss, um, pleasure and uh, displeasure, um, praise and blame, and uh, fame and ill repute. And um, if, we, if we look at the things that most uh, disturb us, often they fall into one of these, these categories. The, the um, 
They're all, all have behind them a strong sense of self and other. So Hongzhou is, is encouraging us to to be to be not only broad minded but not to rely on circumstances, external circumstances, whether it's um, people or things. Such upright, independent spirit can begin not to pursue degrading situations. What does he mean by degrading situations? Well, there's, uh, there's quite a lot to be said about this, and um, uh, time is up, so we'll we'll stop here and um, take this up again tomorrow. And right now, we'll recite four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. Dharma games beyond measure I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain. All beings without number I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain. All beings without number I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.